Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. I know, real shock to you there. Luke 5, as we continue our way through this series through the Gospel of Luke, uh, rock solid truth. Today we're going to dig for some truth in verses 27 through 39. And the title of our study is Man on a Mission. Would you agree with me? If we don't know our life mission, our lives will tend to wander. The urgency of the moment will be a tyrant over us. The passions of the day will constantly grab for our affections. The to-do list never ends. You know that as the years go by, we will find ourselves wondering, what are we even accomplishing in all this busyness? Those moments when our our life flashes before our eyes and we ask, to what end? Jesus knew his mission and it defined him. It guided him. It instructed him. And as we're going to see today, he was teaching and guiding others with this same mission. We would do very well today to pay close attention to the words of Jesus Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 27 of Luke 5. I'll comment as we go, beginning beginning here with point number one out of six, if you're taking notes, the unexpected calling. Verse 27 and 28 say, After that, he, that is Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. We'll pause there. You can just see the headlines on the Jerusalem Tribune the next morning. Son of God picks terrible tax collector for personal disciple. That kind of news would sell in that day, right? About these first century tax collectors, McDonald sums it up well in his commentary. Levi was a Jewish tax collector for the Roman government. You already see the problem there. Such men were hated by their fellow Jews, not only because of this collaboration with Rome, but because of their dishonest practices. They got rich in this process. Many of them did. So we get the picture. There are several points that we could highlight in this calling in these two verses, but I want us to quickly focus on three key observations that are very instructive for us today. Number one, about Levi's obedience. It was immediate. Levi didn't deliberate or calculate how well this might pay off for him. He didn't rationalize. He didn't even ask questions. He just obeyed. Box commentary defines the principle perfectly at play here. Great commitment is expressed with amazing brevity. Again, great commitment is expressed with amazing brevity. We could say that the converse is also true. Low commitment is revealed with delayed obedience. Point number two, Levi's obedience was in full. The text says he left everything behind. Now, I don't know what all that means because I don't know exactly what a first century tax collector's booth looks like 
or what was in it or how valuable those items were. But we have to assume that there was money there. There were probably important documents. This was basically his, his storefront, you could say. We also don't know if he had other employees or helpers with him in the booth. All we know is that there was enough valuable material there to warrant Luke saying he left everything behind. By all human standards, this was risky. It didn't make good business sense. I mean, ponder this. He was risking his livelihood, his career. Surely, some Roman official would hear about this. He abandoned his post and his duty. Doesn't matter. Levi's obedience was immediate and in full. I would extend Bach's thought to this point. Great commitment is expressed with complete obedience. Our commitment to Christ is measured in great part by the extent of our obedience. Countless scriptures attest to this. Let's go to point uh, C. Levi's obedience was according to the command. Observe, Levi didn't just leave everything behind. He also followed Christ. There is a difference in the two. My church family, it is one thing to walk away from the world. It is another to follow Christ. It's one thing to stop sinning. It's another to do righteousness. It's one thing to set aside the temporary pleasures of this life in order to engage in sacrificial kingdom work. Let me ask it this way. How many Christians aren't really following Christ? They claim his name. They go to church. But are they, are we faithfully following him and striving toward and growing in immediate and full obedience. There's a difference. You see this. My church family, a thousand problems and stresses would be avoided if we just obeyed God like this tax collector. Immediately, in full, according to the command. At the same time, heaven only knows the good works and the good fruit and the rewards that would come from our obedience. What was the result for Levi? Now, if you've studied the New Testament, many of you know that Levi is also Matthew. This is the same guy. He has the two names here. And yes, he went on to become one of the 12 apostles. And yes, he went on to write part of the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. How different Matthew's life might have been had he not obeyed the Lord immediately, in full, and exactly according to what Jesus said. This was a pivotal faith decision for him. And this is how the Christ-following life works for us as well. Matthew didn't know what his future held. He just obeyed. And look what God did for and through him. May we be more like this tax collector. Amen? That's all we'll focus on in these two very meaningful verses. But I think we would be remiss 
to just nod our heads and, and agree, yes, those are good points. So true. I need to think about that more. When what we need to do is perhaps pause to take them to the Lord in prayer. Friend, what areas in our personal life, in our relationships, in our service to the Lord, in our turning from sin, do we know that God is calling us to in obedience, but we find ourselves delaying, obeying in part, or obeying on our own terms in our own way? We would do well to pause for a moment right now to respond to the word early here in the study before we forget it. I propose three action steps if the Lord is speaking to you and to me on this point. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. A, take it to God in prayer. In prayer and repentance. Hear me on this. Let there be a major godly sorrow so there can be a major godly change. The change will never come without the prior. B, if it applies... Ask for forgiveness of those we've sinned against. Those our sins have offended and wounded. This will most likely be people in our own home, but of course it can be people that be people outside the home as well. Go and make that relationship right. Begin making that relationship right. See, this is very important. When we go to confess our sins to one another. James 5, that's a very interesting wording there. You don't see that coming. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. When we confess our sins, when we acknowledge them, when we ask for forgiveness, what it also does is it establishes accountability. God should be enough, but he knows that we are but flesh. And he gave us the body of Christ. He gave us the principle of going to a brother or sister and making things right. Accountability is the byproduct, one of the byproducts of that. It is absolutely healthy and necessary. Letter C, obey immediately in full and according to whatever God commands. Just do it. This is the evidence of true repentance, true following true worship. It's a standard of measurement. It's how we prove the sincerity of asking forgiveness of God and others. Just do it. Put yourself in Levi's shoes. You, I, he could have easily given 20 very convincing reasons, excuses on the spot for not following Jesus, at least not yet. But he didn't give any of them. He obeyed immediately and in full, regardless the cost. Keep that in mind. See, when we obey God regardless the cost, it doesn't matter what it costs. We don't have to calculate. We don't have to measure to see how, how far we'll have to go. We just obey regardless the cost, regardless the inconvenience, regardless what the flesh desires and its own impulses. Levi disciplined himself to obedience. By the grace of God and the strength of his spirit, let us also surrender to God and be more like this tax collector. Plain and simple. 
Okay, so there's the unexpected calling with some application for us. Verse 29 now gives us the peculiar party. The peculiar party. Verse 29 says, And Levi gave a big reception for him, as for Jesus, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, if we understand the context, we realize this is, this is undeniably a very unusual circumstance. It appears that Levi was quite wealthy and living in a substantial amount of square footage that could hold big receptions for big crowds, the text says. And so he invites all his tax collector friends and others, and they're all having a feast with Jesus, for Jesus. Very peculiar, knowing who this disloyal, thieving group was, who was particularly abhorred by the Jews. I mean, just you can think about this. The, the, the Pharisees would not have been caught dead mingling with this particular crowd. Look at how they responded. Verse 30, it gives us the grumbling complaint. The Pharisees and their scribes, the scribes, you know, they were, they were like attorneys, the guys who would make sure that the law was kept to, that it was defined well. The, scribe, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. And I'll even mention one of the commentaries says, you know, seeing the, the order of events here, this may very well have been some of the elite Pharisees from Jerusalem still there observing Jesus like we looked at last week in the prior text. It says the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, to glean some wisdom here, we have to ask, why would the Pharisees grumble at this situation in the first place? Why does Jesus and his disciples eating with sinners so upset the Pharisees? Why does it bother them so much? It's clearly getting under their skin, and for some reason, they just can't ignore it and do their own thing. They're basically asking, why are you hanging out with bad people? Jesus is going to answer the question in the next verses, but we first need to ponder the nature of the question. We need to identify the heart of the Inquisition so we can learn from what's actually happening in the text here. First, observe that they grumbled, it says. It doesn't matter what they asked. It doesn't matter what they said. It was grumbling, and that made it bad. This could have been an honest question had they humbly asked something like this lord we don't understand please help us to learn why are you and your disciples eating with the tax collectors and sinners matter of fact they could have asked the question exactly how it's recorded in the text here only with a spirit of humility and it would have been a good question There's tremendous application for us here. We must very carefully consider our heart attitude when we speak. Before we ask questions. Before we make statements. You see, we can ask the right thing or say the right thing, but if the attitude behind it is bad, the speech is bad. Arrogance ruins truth. Impatience ruins truth. 
Grumbling, whining, and complaining ruins truth. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It just tends to ruin it, to spoil it, to make it sour to the hearer. And it deserves to be corrected. So Jesus is going to correct them. Verse 31 teaches us much about Jesus and his purpose for coming to earth. You see, they asked a small question, and God was go- Jesus was going to give them a massive answer. In verse 31, here we find the spiritual mission. Verse 31, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those would go down in history as some of the most significant words Jesus ever spoke. In essence, he's saying, I'm here to help them. And then he defined how he helps them. Knowing the arrogance of the Pharisees, you can imagine this answer just kind of burned. Because, I mean, it, it implies, why aren't you? He said, I'm here to help them. And he gives a two-part answer, much like a proverbial parallelism that states the same thing twice with a second statement giving more clarity. Jesus basically says they're spiritually sick and they need spiritual medical attention. They're sinners and they need to repent. And then he identified with this mission when he said, this is why I have come. Church family, the most conc- this most concise mission statement is so significant. This is why Jesus came, to call sinners to repentance. Jesus was a man on a mission, and we have got to be on track with him in this. This mission statement needs to be our mission statement more and more. His objective must be what we focus our heart and our effort on personally and as families and as a church family. You see, as a church, we can have big, fun, attractive events. But if they aren't calling people to turn from sin to the living God, then they're just big, fun, attractive events. And if they aren't calling sinners to repentance, then they aren't healing people of their spiritual, eternal illness. And oftentimes, people don't even know that they are sick. That's why we have annual checkups. Part of the church's proclamation calling is to use the word of Christ to help people recognize that they are sinners in need of forgiveness. Now, even a non-believer understands this. The Christian's calling goes a step further. We use the word of God, as has been used for us, to help people see they have sinned against God and need his forgiveness. Part of being a good Christian friend to an unbeliever is humbly, lovingly, patiently helping them to see that they are sinners just like we are, if I might add. But follow the point of truth here, the path of the truth. Until they see and affirm that they are sinners before a holy God, they will never see the need to repent before him. If they don't see their spiritual sickness, 
They'll never see their need for a great physician, a savior. The call of repentance is a call from sin to God. This is the ministry of reconciliation, as Scripture says. And this mission needs to be very clear in our mind and in our action plan and the way we carry it out. Because if this mission isn't very clear in our mind, it will not be carried out in our mission, no matter how religious we are. Turn with me in your Bibles briefly to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. This text is so clear, so beautiful. It's so inspiring in helping us to know why and how to reach out to the lost. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning of verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You see, Christ died on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That's what that's referring to. He made him who knew no sin, spotless Jesus, sinless Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why Jesus came to earth. I know that's kind of a lot to digest spiritually, mentally, but that's why Jesus Christ came to earth and his mission must be our mission. Jesus is going to speak more to this, but first look at the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' statement. Verse 33 gives us the inaccurate comparison. Verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. Notice that they totally changed the subject. They had no answer to what Jesus just said. So they moved right on to their next point to tempt him wrong. Is this not just human nature? When God or others speak to us, and it's true, and we know it, and it's convicting, it speaks to areas of us that need to change, that need to improve, that need to be more like Christ. Nobody has to teach us that one of the quickest ways out is just change the subject. The Pharisees could not even answer Jesus. So they went on to the next topic. It's so interesting, they could have repented in that moment. They could have humbled themselves under the hand of God and said, he's right. Something's not right here. Their lives totally could have changed in that moment, but instead they shifted the topic to their next accusation. Observe here for the second time their challenging approach to Jesus. This is very cautionary to the church. 
if we are not careful, we can approach God the same way as if to correct him or to inform him that he's not doing things right in our life or in the world or in the church. It's one thing to ask God why out of a spirit of humility. It's another to ask it with a little bit of a clenched fist, you know what I mean? Out of bitterness, out of anger, out of distrust. The Pharisees didn't make a humble inquiry here. This was the continuation of their grumbling. Here are three quick points of application we can learn from from the Pharisees' poor example here. A, don't challenge God. Humbly inquire instead. B, think twice before comparing. And three, you ready for this one? Reevaluate your religious traditions. For the Pharisees, it was their fasting and prayers. Self-righteousness often comes in the form of righteousness. It's like the angel of light. But their attitude was one more of, we're the judge in this situation, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and you're doing it wrong, and so are your disciples. Are we in the 21st century so different? It is very easy to judge God, to tell him he's not being fair. Or even if we don't state it, our hard attitude is one of objection to the way God is doing things in our life. How easy it is to say, look at everything I'm doing. Why aren't others doing it as well? That's exactly what the Pharisees did here. How come they don't have to do it? And at the heart of it, they're they're saying, can't you see that we're better than them? Be very careful with our religious traditions. Over the next few chapters, Jesus is going to reveal that religious hypocrisy is not better than others. These hypocrites are not better than others. They're actually quite worse. This account definitely urges us to reevaluate our religious traditions, the things we do day after day, week after week, Sunday after Sunday. Sure, yes, are they what God has called us to do, but there's an evaluation that goes a step deeper and I dare say much deeper. Is our heart right in these things? In verse 34, Jesus is about to give them the proper response. I love this. This comes in two parts. The first is a statement about himself in verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Think about this. Jesus, and I'm sure they got this, especially the scribes, Jesus is undeniably claiming to be the bridegroom in this analogy. He is claiming to be the man of the hour. 
no doubt this grated at the Pharisees because of their hatred, their animosity toward him. And isn't this interesting? Jesus could say these exact same words to a worshiper and they would adore him for it. Heart attitude changes perspective. It changes behavior dramatically. We see it at play right here. The second part of Jesus' response was a lesson for the Pharisees, and it comes in verses 36 to 39. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. This is quite a parable. The more I've studied it, the more fond I have grown of it because of how much those words mean to you and me. Jesus is referring to the new covenant and their entrance into it through Jesus Christ and his soon-to-be-accomplished death and resurrection. Jesus is telling that something is about to change, and it's all because of him, the bridegroom. Jesus is pointing to the gospel. What does gospel stand for? Two words? Good news. What do the first three letters of news spell? New. Jesus is trying to help them see that there is a new work of God happening right before their eyes. There is a new sacrifice, a new atonement, a new sacrificial lamb, a new high priest present for what the old was all pointing toward. And I love the way he warns them in the analogy in verse 37. If you mix the old with the new, it's going to blow up. It's going to burst. Mixing the old Mosaic law with the law of grace and liberty in Christ is going to explode. Mixing the old covenant with the new is not going to work well for you. It's going to tear. It's going to burst. It's going to be spilled out and make a mess. There was and is a time and a place for the old, but this isn't it. Sadly, the Pharisees would not catch this. Through the arrogance of their heart and the stubbornness of their will, they would not understand what Jesus, the Son of God, was teaching them in this moment. They would conclude, the old is good enough. Truth is, they weren't even rightly understanding and obeying the old. Otherwise, it would have pointed them very successfully to the new. They were certainly rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ. And consequently, many of them would remain spiritually sick. They would eternally remain sinners, unforgiven, dead in their trespasses. 
Friends, how about you? Do you understand the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done to offer you eternal spiritual healing? the forgiveness of all your sins and the reconciling of your broken relationship with the heavenly Father. That's why Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man came to earth to call sinners to repentance. We're all sinners and we all need to repent. That means to turn from our sins, our wicked ways, our self-worship. That's really what it's about. Turning to the living God who rightfully deserves our love, our worship, our obedience, our service. He deserves us. He wants us. That's an incredible thought that the God Almighty desires you for himself to be your father, to make you his child. He desires a relationship, a perfect relationship with every person who will repent of their sin and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of reconciliation that has been poured out so freely and so wonderfully in full upon us. And now we have the privileged responsibility of passing on to others. I urge you, do not be like the Pharisees. Their hard, unbelieving hearts refused to follow Christ. Again, Christian friend, don't be like the Pharisees in this text. Be like Levi. I need to be more like Levi. You see, there were two men on a mission now. May our faith, our commitment, our belief be more and more evidenced by the immediate and complete obedience to God's word, to Christ himself, to his mission for us to go into all the world and to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them everything that Jesus commanded, knowing that he would be with us the whole time. You see, this is obedience to the law of liberty, as James chapter 1 says. The authoritative truth that sets men and women free. That's why we follow Christ. We've also been reminded today to be careful not to challenge God, but to simply obey Him immediately, in full, exactly as He asks. And also to be careful not to put religious practices ahead of Christ Himself. You see, the Pharisees, they prayed and they fasted all right, but they missed God Himself in it. They totally missed the Son of God, though he were standing right before his eye, their eyes. That's why later he said, if I would bring back Moses from the dead, you still would not believe. Who would believe Moses when God's Son is already standing there and they don't believe? That should strike a healthy dose of fear in us because these were some of the most religious people 
The thought that we could be doing so many religious things and miss the one we are supposed to love and commune with and serve out of joy to worship with all our heart like nothing else and no one else in the entire world. The thought that we could be so busy following religion and self-righteousness that we fail to follow Christ. But praise the Lord, it does not have to be that way. Of all people, this tax collector got it right. Let's be more like him as he followed Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the instruction in your word that frees us. Even as believers, even as children of God, it's so easy for us to get all wrapped up and bent around the pole of religious duties, the good things that we're supposed to be doing, and yes, we should be doing and continue doing, perhaps, worth a reevaluation, but Lord, these things that you've called us to do, Lord, help us not to do them and miss the one that they were supposed to point to. We're thankful, Jesus, thankful for Jesus, that he was willing to come and call sinners to repentance. He came and he called me. He calls each one here because he wants the relationship to be reconciled, made right, made new, eternally. Lord, we go from this place rejoicing in our salvation. May that joy not only stop, not stop with us, though. May it move us to join you in this mission of proclaiming reconciliation with God. May the joy of our salvation drive us overwhelmingly to immediate, in full obedience to whatever we know your word is telling us to do and who to be. Lord, you've been so good, so patient, so kind. We rejoice in this. And we purpose to go and honor our salvation and our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.